Greetings and welcome to my podcast, Algonquin Defining Moments. This is your host, Gay Clemson, oral history author, storyteller, and lover of all things Algonquin Park. As you know, I've researched and written extensively over the last 20 years about the human history of Algonquin Park, which I'm really having fun sharing with you. Before I begin, I wanted to remind everyone that all of my books, as well as those by my friend and fellow Algonquin Park human historian, Roderick Mackay, are all available through the Friends of Algonquin Park bookstores and at Amazon. On my website, www.algonquinparkheritage.com, on the Pics and Vids page, I've posted selections from my library of historical photographs of people and places that I talk about in these podcasts, which I hope you will find of interest. As I mentioned before, I also strongly encourage everyone to lend their financial support to the Wildlife Research Station, whose information can be found on their website, www.algonquinwrs.ca, and consider buying an Algonquin Defining Moments t-shirt, coffee cup, or other merch by clicking on the Gifts and Gears buttons on my website. If you have any ideas of topics that you think would be fun to explore or just want to share your sentiments about my podcasting efforts, please feel free to email me at clemsong at algonquinparkheritage.com. In the next two episodes, I'm going to focus on sharing with you as much history as I can about Algonquin Park's largest body of water, the Great Opiongo Lake. Much of the content comes from a now out-of-print 1998 book by S. Bernard Shaw called Lake Opiongo, Untold Stories of Algonquin Park's Largest Lake. I'm also, for the first time, going to try to share as much as I know about the Indigenous Lake Opiongo experience, and for that I'm depending upon two sources, by Chief Kirby White Duck of the Algonquins of Pickwaganagan, including a 2001 Algonquin Park TED Talk and Chapter 2 in Mike Walton's 2009 Algonquin Park, The Human Impact. As always, I lean heavily on my colleague and friend Rory Mackay's Algonquin Park, a place like no other, as well as his 2016 second edition of Spirits of the Little Bonisher, and of course Audrey Saunders' Algonquin Story, and a few Raven articles thrown in for good measure. In the first episode in this Lake Opiongo series, I focused mostly on what was happening in the Algonquin area prior to the park's creation in 1893. In this episode, I'm going to continue on that theme, but I'm going to focus on capturing the colonization history. I think the best place to start in capturing the colonization history of Lake Opiongo is to start with the Opiongo Colonization Road, properly known as the Ottawa-Opiongo Colonization Road. This road was one of about a dozen or so Canada West roads between Lake Simcoe and the Ottawa River that were built to encourage agricultural settlement in the 1850s. The Opiongo Colonization Road was surveyed in 1851-52, mostly by Hamlet Burrett and A.H. Sims, under the direction of surveyor Robert Bell. Now, to provide some context, it's important to remember that those in charge of Canada West at the time were convinced that survival of that colony depended upon having lots of available land that could be open to settlement. The idea was to stop newly arriving immigrants from heading south to the United States. With earlier surveys suggesting that the area from Pembroke to Lake Nipissing to Lake Huron had great agricultural potential, wrong. 
The original somewhat crazy idea was to connect the central and southernmost end of Lake Opiongo to the Ottawa River at Farrell's Landing. A lumberman didn't seem to object, because one presumes a government-serviced road would help ensure the availability of farm produce for their lumber camps. Lake Alpiongo was to become a main stop along a route that would extend northwest to connect with the eastern shore of Georgian Bay. It took seven months for the Sims and Burrett team, along with six workmen, a cook, and an explorer, to set an exploratory line to the south end of Spruill Bay which they did by August 1851. The job of the explorer was to range widely to find the best route for the road. In Rory Mackay's book, Algonquin Park, A Place Like No Other, to mark the end of the line, they set up a cedar post, and according to Burritt's diary, quote, deposited under it a sixpence with the head of King George III, another of Queen Victoria, and an old tobacco pipe. The return trip, which involved the laying out of lots, was completed by April 1852, and in 1853 the two headed out again with another crew, and their first task was to move the end of the line to the Narrows, which they thought was a better route because it avoided the need to cross the large spruce swamp at Costello Creek. Here on the east side they laid out a village, complete with hotels, farms, sawmills, flour mills, a second cedar marker post was set up, this time with a liniment glass bottle buried underneath. The road was open for business for winter travel in 1855, and it was estimated that travelers could progress at a rate of about 24 miles, or 38.6 kilometers a day. Now it's important to take a minute and think about what such a road was like, with road in caps and quotation marks. According to Mackay in Algonquin Park, a place like no other, measuring about a chain wide, which is approximately 66 feet or 20 and a bit meters, the smaller tree stumps would have been mostly removed, with the track meandering around the larger ones. Low sections would have been filled in with tree branches, covered with tree trunks, over which logs running crosswise would have been laid and the whole thing covered with brush and dirt. Small streams, would have had wooden culverts placed over them and slopes made level by digging out the high sides. Wet ground or swampy areas would have been covered with corduroy to make a bridge that was essentially two long tree trunks laid some distance apart with shorter logs laid sideways, which was then covered with brush and dirt. Such roads were passable using sleighs in winter, but certainly not using wagons pulled by horses or oxen in the spring and summer. Apparently, it took until 1867 before the road was upgraded to, quote, wagon road status. And even then, that was only for a section that ended some ways from Lake Opiongo at about five miles north of today's village of Madawaska. This was, of course, long before government officials realized that the Algonquin Park landscape did not lend itself to sustainable farming. In the 1880s, they stopped all of that nonsense talk by cutting the funding for the road at Bark Lake, which is about 40 kilometers short of Lake Opiongo. Of course, a few folks tried to farm in the area, supporting the lumber camps that started to arrive in the 1860s. The earliest reference to a logger in the area of Lake Opiongo 
is a reference to Alexander Graham from Renfrew, who in the early 1860s arrived at Annie Bay, which was then called Graham Bay. In 1862-63, he with another fellow, Colin McDougall, had a lumber berth, cutting license which ran along the northwest corner of the east arm, going all the way to Lake Lavier. Graham and McDougall didn't last long, and so it wasn't really until the 1880s when J.R. Booth came along that things got interesting. Booth had purchased the Egan Estate and all of its timber rights at auction in 1867, and to support the logging camps he built a large depot downstream from Annie Bay between Booth Lake and Farm Lake. This attracted a few settler colonists who established farms in the area to supply his camps. Note that Annie Bay at the lake's southwest end was the entryway where in later years logs were flushed every spring from the environs around the lake via the Opiongo River and a series of lakes to the Matawaska River. From there, the square timbers would be driven to the Ottawa River, where they would be assembled into rafts and floated down the Ottawa River to Quebec City. Note that in my Algonquin Defining Moments, episode 14, I share Ottawa journalist Ron Corbett's epic story of the last square timber raft run that he stage-managed in 2008. As you likely all know, at Quebec City, the square timbers would be loaded onto ships bound for England, to be sawn into lumber for ships, masts, and other uses. A wooden dam was erected at the bottom of the Annie Bay about 1867, so that enough water could be built up to flush the logs in the spring down the Opiongo River to Victoria Lake and beyond. In my book, Governor Smith's Ontario Retreat, there's a story of the annual spring drive and a visit between Booth's river driver foreman Ned Simard and Wilmot Hamilton, the caretaker of Smith's Victoria Lake Hunting Lodge. As noted by a Hamilton relative, the two would sit on a square timber in front of a fire amongst the camp tents, swapping stories of friends and characters, tall tales and practical jokes, and of course their pride in jobs well done. Ned would be smoking his black shag tobacco in a stubby pipe. During my research into the origins of the hunting lodges owned by Canada Atlantic Railway's general manager, Edson Chamberlain, and Vermont Governor Curtis Smith on Victoria Lake, I discovered that the area south and east of Lake Opiongo wasn't totally uninhabited. The 1871 census recorded 394 residents and 84 households in the area around the small village of today's Madawaska on Highway 60. Most of the 270 men worked in the bush at various lumber camps in the area, but about 80 were farmers who likely sold everything they could grow to the lumber camps. Ferdinand Offray, for example, was a 38-year-old tenant farmer who leased 90 acres from the McLaughlin brothers near the Opiongo Colonization Road, northeast of the village of Madawaska. He had cultivated five acres, with five acres of improvements, including a house and a barn. He had a horse, a milk cow, 44 head of cattle, and a carriage or sleigh. In 1871, Offrey with wife Philemon produced 100 bushels of oats, 200 bushels of potatoes on half an acre, 6 pounds of butter, and had cut 23 cords of wood. He was still farming in 1881. One son, Joseph, must have either died or had moved on to something else, as he was not mentioned in the later census. Instead, there were five more children for a total of six between the ages of 2 and 14 years of age. Interestingly enough, all four of his daughters were named Mary, 
although with different middle names. On my AlgonquinParkHeritage.com website is a picture of what a typical homestead of the times looked like and a photo of George Pazook and his family, who in the 1890s homesteaded at what was then called the Egan Estate. Egan Estate was the name of a train station stop on the Ottawa, Arnprior, and Perry Sound Railway, where Smith and Chamberlain would keep their private rail cars, whilst they and their parties were in residence on Victoria Lake. There are some great photos of the Offrey farm site, which was rediscovered in the spring of 2016 by my friends John Haskin and Ken Coswell, after I goaded them into seeing if they could using approximate GPS coordinates. Another homesteader, Alexander Oram, with his wife Matilda and three children, farmed in the late 1870s, early 1880s, just east of J.R. Booth's Big Depot, south of Farm Lake and west of Victoria Lake. Today, the nearby Oram Lake is named after him, as is Oram Mountain, one of the highest points of land in the area, and Oram's Landing. Apparently, Oram's Landing was where a winter lumber ice road that crossed Lake Victoria terminated. From there, a tote road headed northwest up to Farm and Booth Lakes. There's a wonderful hand-drawn historic map that Rory Mackay shared with me that shows the road's location and another which shows the location of both the Booth Depot and Oram's farm. Both maps I've posted to my Algonquin Park Heritage website. Apparently, even before Oram and Offray, another homesteader in the area was Elias Moore. He was first mentioned in the notes of Duncan MacDonald, a government surveyor who passed through the area in 1847. Elias Moore likely worked to supply nearby lumbering activities, and his farm was, as noted by MacDonald, on the 17th mile on the south side of the river and the east end of the lake. It's a tract of good land about 20 acres cleared with a house and a barn, and is occupied by Elias Moore for the purpose of raising grain and hay for lumbering. The Apiango River bears northeasterly to the end of the seventh mile with strong shallow water with many rapids, land timbered with red and white pine. Some kind of tote road was established from the Moore Farm south to the Apiango Colonization Road, which later became a portage named after Moore. For decades in the early 20th century, the Moore Farm's long abandoned pasture was used by the Hamiltons of Victoria Lake in summer as a place to free-range their milking cows. Farming on Lake Apiango proper didn't happen until 1871 and lasted only for a decade or two, when Captain John Dennison, his two sons, John Jr. and Henry, sometimes known as Harry, and their families happened on the scene and decided to settle near the Narrows. As previously mentioned, the Narrows is a spot on the lake where the east, north, and south arms generally meet. If you stand with your back to the south arm, the site of son Henry Dennison's farm is located up the east shore just north of a 105-meter portage to the north arm. Some of the land at this spot was already cleared, having possibly been, as mentioned previously, an indigenous summer fishing camp. Captain Dennison's other son, John Dennison, Jr., cleared some land directly east of the Narrows. On some old maps, Henry's farm is called Sunnyside. The only thing we know for sure is that the ranger hut built in 1903 to the west of the Narrows was also called Sunnyside. In reference, one supposes, to it being on the north shore of the south arm and therefore on the sunny side. 
According to a Denison grandson, over the years, the family was able to clear and farm close to 120 acres of fields. The farmstead included a storehouse on the top of the hill, a barn and stables, a large woodshed, and a cabin with a magnificent view of Apiango Lake. Given the state of the Apiango colonization road, I wonder sometimes how the two families and Captain John actually got there. As mentioned previously, the Apiango colonization road was apparently wagon usable to the village of Madawaska. From there, perhaps they traveled up Moore's Portage to Victoria Lake and through the chain of lakes, Crotch to Booth, by canoe, as we do today, to the Apiango River and ultimately Annie Bay. They probably waited until the winter to walk the horses and cows via the ice roads that were built across many of the various lakes. So where did Captain John Dennison come from? As I shared in episode 21 on the McCourt family at Rock Lake, and S. Bernard Shaw recounts in Lake Apiango untold stories of Algonquin Park's largest lake, born in Penrith, England in 1799, Captain John Dennison had a military commission and helped with his family's distillery and brewing business. But the call of the wild captured his imagination, and with wife Anne and three young children, Mary, Elizabeth, and John Jr., he arrived in Quebec City in 1831. Later, two more children arrived, Henry and Anne. During the 1837 Lower Canada Rebellion, he distinguished himself while serving with the Beach River Volunteers. Achieving the rank of captain, he was moved to Montreal and demobilized in 1839. While in Montreal, Denison's wife Anne died, and in 1852 he moved the family again to Bytown, today's Ottawa, where he ran a distillery for four years. Still attracted by the idea of land ownership, he received a land grant and settled at a spot up the Madawaska River at what became known as Denison's Bridge. There he kept a stopping place. Now, stopping places, also known as roadhouses, were places where Teamsters or others heading into the bush to and from lumber camps could stop overnight and obtain food and accommodation for themselves and their horses. In 1862, the spot was renamed Cumbermere and today is located about 10 miles south of Barry's Bay. According to the 1871 census, the Denisons were farming 273 acres with 30 having been improved. They had two horses, two fillies, five head of cattle, and three pigs. On that improved land, they cultivated 14 bushels of spring wheat, 250 bushels of oats, 25 bushels of peas, 400 bushels of potatoes, and 53 acres of hay. They also fished and trapped, and had been able to preserve two barrels of whitefish, eight barrels of trout, and had the skins of eight beaver, 50 muskrat, 30 mink, eight marten, one bear, and 34 deer and moose. After watching the Apiango colonization road unfold from Denison's Bridge and hearing glowing accounts of the agricultural potential of the area, Denison decided with two of his sons, Henry and John Jr., and their wives, Elizabeth and Ellen, to open up land at what they thought would be the end point of the Apiango line. Note that Ellen was the daughter of Alexander Orham of Orham's Landing fame, so was likely familiar with the rigors of life in the area. They, of course, envisioned hotels, mills, and toll bridges, which, as we all know, were not to be. Denison's daughter and husband, John Hudson, took over the managing of the Denison Bridge Hotel, 
which was still around in 1998 and was called the Hudson House Restaurant and today is a bed and breakfast hangout. The Denison Brothers Farms must have been somewhat successful as the 1881 census, including John, his eldest son John and wife Elizabeth, had seven children, with five having been born on Lake Opiongo. Lizzie Dennison, the youngest, went on to become the main cook at the Algonquin Hotel on Canoe Lake after a stint at the Highland Inn. She would also help get the hotel ready in the spring for summer guests. In winter, she would cook at a nearby lumber camp. Captain John's other son, Henry, with his wife Ellen, had at that time five children. Now two others, Jean, then three, and Edward, then one, had died during the winter of 1876-77. I think it's time for a musical interlude, and I'd like to share with you a track called Courage from Dan Gibson Solitude's Thunder Spirit CD. Thank <laughs> you. 
Captain Dennison was, it seems, far more interested personally in trapping than in farming, and set up a trap line in the surrounding area. The story of his mauling by a bear in 1881 goes something like this. Setting out one day with his eight-year-old grandson Jackie, the two came to a bear trap he'd set on the Green Lake Portage. As told by Audrey Saunders, chained to the far side of a great log and baited with rotten meat, the trap was skillfully set. Hearing nothing as he approached, the captain mistakenly assumed that the trap had not been sprung. Just to make sure, he cautiously stuck his head over the log to take a look. Just then, an enormous bear, whipped into fighting madness by the pain of the steel clamp, leapt at him, clawed him, and dragged him over the edge of the log. The old man screamed, but was powerless in the mighty grip of the great beast. He called out to Jackie to go for help. The little fellow rushed down to the canoe at the end of the Green Lake Portage and paddled the long 11 kilometers back to the farm as fast as he could. When he got home, he found that his father, Henry, had gone on an overnight hunting trip, and there was no help to be had. Days later, when he and Harry returned to the spot, they found evidence of a terrific struggle. All of the old man's clothes, but his boots had been ripped to shreds. Both he and the bear were dead. They carried the captain's body back to the farm and buried him in an enclosed split-rail-fenced grave behind the barns. Another version, as told by Bernice List, the granddaughter of son Henry Dennison, had Captain John heading out with Jackie with his, quote, double-barreled, muzzle-loading shotgun and an axe. Spray from rough water wet the charges in the gun, rendering it useless, so the captain took only the axe with him to investigate the trap. Jackie stayed by the canoe, and some time later heard his grandfather cry, Jackie, go home! The frightened boy paddled some ten kilometers home, but it was too late to mount a search. The next morning, at daylight, Jackie's father and two other men returned to the site and found that the trap had moved. Spreading out to search, the furious bear lunged from the bush at one man and was shot by a worry Henry, who had made sure that his powder had stayed dry. They found the mangled remains of Captain Dennison, and sadly carried him home. A later version of the story had Jackie waiting by the canoe at the Green Lake Portage, with the instructions that if the captain failed to show up in two hours, he should head home. That evening, his father Henry searched the shoreline to no avail, and it wasn't until the next morning that he found the trap. Another version suggested that the trap line wasn't Captain Dennison's at all, but one set by one of his sons, and that the captain had been warned to stay away from it. All of these provided interesting additional color to the story. The captain was buried near the graves of Henry Dennison's two children, about 200 meters south of the farm site and about 50 meters from the shoreline. In 1982, a memorial plaque was placed at the site, commissioned by granddaughter Bernice Fisk. Unfortunately, Jackie himself died at the age of 18, having accidentally shot himself while hunting moose.
1882, the two families abandoned the farm and returned to Cumbermere. It's not known what happened to John Jr. and his family, but as Shaw wrote, Henry later farmed by Aylan Lake, where he died at the age of 93 in 1936. There's a picture of both brothers, dated around 1890, and of Henry's wife Ellen in 1910 on my website, algonquinparkheritage.com. According to an 1885 survey, Sunnyside was then taken over by the Fraser and McCaution Lumber Company and was operated for a while as a depot farm. According to the surveyor's field notes, 121 well-fenced acres included a large substantial dwelling, a barn, stables, and other outbuildings, as well as pasture for a large herd of cattle and a number of horses. On it is raised a large quantity of hay, oats, peas, potatoes, and garden vegetables. For a long time, the clearings of the two farms were clearly visible, both from the air and from the ground. In 1903, timbers from the farmsteads were used to build the nearby ranger's hut that for years was called the Sunnyside Hut. As previously mentioned, by the time of the park's creation in 1893, government and the people of Ontario were becoming aware, as noted by D. Lee in 1992, in Algonquin Provincial Park Agenda Paper 27, that, quote, nature was not infinite or superabundant, and that the land had already been irretrievably altered by clear-cut logging over the previous 40-some years. Sportsmen were getting worried that game and fish needed more protection, with many, according to Lambert and Pross in their 1967 report, Reviewing Nature's Wealth, a Centennial Story, expressing acute anxiety around the whole future of wildlife resources in the province. These were sentiments that the Algonquins had been advocating for for decades, if not since that first raft flew down the Ottawa River to Quebec City. But as noted by Gerald Killen in his 1993 book, Protected Places, A History of Ontario's Provincial Park System, quote, no thought was given to protecting the interests of the Aboriginal peoples after whom Algonquin Park had been named. No one seems to have considered the hunting, fishing, and trapping rights of the native peoples in the region. Land Commissioner Hardy frankly acknowledged the oversight shortly after creating Algonquin. As Hardy noted in correspondence quoted by Audrey Sanders in her 1946 book, The Algonquin Story, quote, It will be a ticklish business to prevent Indians killing wild animals in the park where they have been in the habit of hunting and their ancestors before them. I am free to say this Indian hunting did not occur to me at the time the whole matter was under discussion. Now I see nothing for it but to exclude the Indians as well as the white men but great care and tact will be required to handle these people so as to not embitter them or them feeling they have a substantial grievance. The funny thing is that the substantial grievance wasn't just about losing hunting and trapping rights. It was also grievance about having no place to live, nor means to look after a family, and no means to maintain even a semblance of traditional ways of life. As discussed by Chief Kirby White Duck in Algonquin Park, The Human Impact, in 1863, quote, 30 years before the establishment of Algonquin Park, the Algonquin petitioned the Governor-General 
from their summer gathering place at the Lake of Two Mountains and asked for an order in your council, granting to them 4,000 acres of land at the headwaters of the Madawaska River in the township of Lawrence, to be reserved to them for the purpose of an Indian village. The petition was signed by eight chiefs and approximately 108 other Algonquins. Their request, like so many others before it, was ignored. That was until 1894, 30 years later, when the then assistant commissioner of Crown Lands wrote words to the effect that were shared by Chief Kirby White Duck in a 2001 Algonquin Park TED Talk that you can find on YouTube that establishing such a reserve so close to the park boundary was being denied because it would be impossible to stop the settlement members from hunting and trapping in the park. In addition, as noted by Chief Kirby White Duck, a number of other Algonquins, such as Chief Peter Charbo, Moyers Abbas, Paul and Mary Shemaganich, and Joseph Fransway were farming and residing in the upper watershed of the Madawaska River around Galeri Lake and Rock Lake. These Algonquins, who lived in Lawrence and Nightingale townships, were evicted on the pretext, quote, that the presence of the Indians might be a great danger to preservation of the game in the park. Sentiments that are sometimes expressed even today, in spite of demonstrably illustrated care of the fishing, trapping, and hunting rights that they self-manage in Algonquin Park today. As Killen went on to quote from a 1986 MNR research report by Lise Hansen, quote, the failure to recognize Aboriginal rights contributed to a sense of injustice that would smolder for decades. The pent-up resentment eventually burst forth in 1983 when the Golden Lake First Nation petitioned the governments of Canada and Ontario claiming ownership of all lands in the province of Ontario which form part of the watershed of the Ottawa River below the Mattawa. This area had been, they argued, occupied and enjoyed by the Algonquin Nation since time immemorial and had not been ceded by any treaty entered into by the Algonquin Nation. However, the recounting of what happened next in this regard will need to be left to another episode. Once again, it's important, I think, for all of us to put this episode on pause and think for a few moments, perhaps a little mindful meditation. There's no question that the protection of the headwaters and tributaries of the Muskoka, Petawawa, Madawaska, and Bonisher rivers was important, or that the projection of wildlife, a noble cause, and a good policy goal, at least as long as you weren't a wolf, but to give no consideration whatsoever to the indigenous populations whose livelihoods and way of life was being completely upended is hard to fathom with a 2022 sensibility. Our workshop discussion on this topic also focused on what happened to indigenous families when those related white man's laws were broken. Though the focus of our workshop discussion was communities in the far north where lawbreakers would end up in jail hundreds of miles from their home communities, once released, often they had no means to return home and so were forced to abandon their communities. Our conversation instantly made me think of the Burwash Industrial Farm located in the Wanapate River Valley, which was about 45 kilometers south of Sudbury. A provincial jail that opened in 1914 Burwash housed as many as a thousand inmates at its peak. Lake Apiango was likely a major thoroughfare for poachers and when caught and unable to pay the allotted fines, Burwash was often where they were sent. 
The facility was only accessible via a nearby CNR station until Highway 69 was built in 1936. I wonder how many Indigenous people had to walk home because they had no money for a rail ticket once they were released. And what about later, when the government warned car travelers not to pick up hitchhikers in case they were escaping convicts? I also wonder how their family survived whilst the main breadwinner was away for anywhere from 90 days to a year. In 1897, has been well described in other narratives and books, the Ottawa Arm Prayer and Perry Sound Railway opened for passenger service. Soon after, in 1902, the St. Anthony Lumber Company built a spur line called the Whitney and Opiongo Railway from Whitney to Spruill Bay. This, of course, is why the road in from Highway 60 is so straight from Costello Creek, as it follows the old rail bed. The line was used to bring in supplies for the various lumber camps in the area, and also to bring out loads of logs that fed the Whitney Sawmill. The Whitney Sawmill was then managed in part owned by Edwin Canfield Whitney. One interesting story about what life was like on Lake Opiongo at that time comes from Robert and James Taylor, brothers who were raised at the Madawaska River near Combermere and spent most of their working lives in logging camps. In 1907, Bob worked as a cook's helper, known as a cookie, for $24 a month, and Jim worked on the log drives, receiving $26 a month. One summer, their jobs were to search the 170-kilometer Lake Opiago shoreline and round up stray logs that had gotten stuck in the mud, in rocks and around tree stumps. Tormented by black flies in the spring, they found that harness oil was the best black fly bite prevention remedy. But it was a challenge, though, to get it off, because once it dried, the blackest coal remains took a lot of vigorous washing and rubbing. According to the Canada Lumberman, the Lake Opiongo cutting operations produced 40 million board feet of lumber in 1904 and 1905. This success didn't last long, though, and the rail line was allegedly shut down around 1910. Government records, however, show that it wasn't until the late 1920s that the rails were officially taken up. But back to settling on Lake Opiongo. In 1920, Holman James, a retired British Army colonel and actor with the stage name of Colonel Fred Lindsay, applied for a concession at the Denison Farm to start a boys' military camp. He commissioned a survey of five acres that was completed in 1921. To be called Camp Opiongo, he wanted to attract somewhere between 250 and 300 sons of wealthy Americans. The camp, he wrote, would be great value in combating vandalism and forest fires. Now, the help in fighting forest fires I can understand, but I'm not sure what kind of vandalism was being anticipated in the wilds of Algonquin Park in those days. According to Shaw and Lake Opiongo Untold Stories, George Bartlett, the park superintendent at the time, supported the idea because it'll be the first school camp in the park under a British subject. Again, I'm not sure what being British had to do with anything, but what can I say except that perhaps it reflects some of the biases around at the time? Nevertheless, Colonel James seemed to have had lofty ambitions. He wrote of having a fleet of a hundred canoes, three twenty-five-seater powerboats, with two army officers and four senior non-commissioned officers to train the boys. 
There was even some talk on the part of the CNR, the Canadian National Railway, of establishing a railway station at the north end of Whitefish Lake to support the camp. Now, according to Shaw, a 1922 CNR map has Station for Camp Apiango clearly marked. Alas, no correspondence or other records suggest that any buildings were ever actually built on Whitefish Lake. This may well have been because, as Shaw went on to speculate, quote, the 20-kilometer paddle and portage through Kearney, Little Rocks, Sunday, and Spurrow Lakes to Apiango's south arm and then to the east arm would have discouraged all but the most enthusiastic boys and staff. One would have thought, though, that the owners of the St. Anthony Lumber Company and the Whitney Apiango Railway, which was still operating at the time, would have been enthusiastic supporters. However, that apparently wasn't the case. Even J.R. Booth weighed in and, quote, forcefully pressed his concerns about boys getting up to mischief at a boys' summer resort. One presumes that by mischief he meant the possibility of starting fires. Fire, of course, was still the number one fear, as in a heartbeat, fire could potentially ruin his timber-cutting limits in the area. But eventually a lease was issued to Colonel James in 1924, but by then, even though he'd invested some $30,000 in the venture, his acting work took him to California, and by 1926, the lease had been cancelled. In March 1926, a Claude Labar from Lakewood, Ohio, who'd applied to establish Camp Ottertail on Otterslide Lake, asked to transfer his application to the James Apiango site. According to Shaw, the Lands and Forest Deputy Minister at the time suspected that Labar had other much more ambitious ideas in mind, including a tourist hotel, clubhouse, or other extensive commercial operations. One presumes that with government officials' slow-walking support, Labar lost interest as nothing came of any of his ideas. Well, I hope you've enjoyed this adventure into the rich and complex history of Great Apiango Lake. In the next episode, I'll talk about Apiango Lodge, the predecessor to today's Algonquin Outfitters, and I'll also talk about the one cottager on the lake, John Bates, and close with a bunch of stories about some of the tragedies that have happened on Apiango Lake. For those interested, given that it is now taking me substantial time to research and write new scripts, I haven't been able to keep up a bi-monthly schedule. To help keep us together, I've just set up a chat group on the Discord platform for answering questions, sharing smaller stories, and general keeping in touch. Also, don't forget to check out my website, www.algonquinparkheritage.com, for all kinds of accompanying pictures and the podcast episode notes for links to various websites and articles I've used. If you're interested in purchasing any of my books, they can be found on Amazon.com or at the Friends of Algonquin Park Bookstore. Or, of course, by reaching out to me directly at clemsong at algonquinparkheritage.com. Until next time.